Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. See Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announcing his run for president tonight with commentary from Jenna Ellis. And what would a DeSantis campaign launch be without a response from former President Trump? He took to social media today blasting his newest challenger, who he has called unelectable. It's been one year since the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 students and two teachers dead at an elementary school. President Biden marks the day with a memorial event. Is the federal government banning gas stoves? Lawmakers held a hearing to learn more, but a key witness from the Biden administration was a no-show. Iconic singer Tina Turner dies at age 83. She was remembered for her mega hits, including Proud Mary, What's Love Got to Do With It, and The Best. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this afternoon filed a formal notification with the Federal Election Commission that he's running for president. He's expected to announce his run any minute now on Twitter Spaces. And we have constitutional attorney and former senior advisor and counsel to President Donald Trump, Jenna Ellis, to discuss. Jenna, the governor is making the official announcement any minute or maybe making it right now. What do you think of his strategy? Quite unconventional. It really is, and I think it's actually brilliant because he's reaching a far wider audience than the gatekeepers of traditional legacy media that require often cable news subscriptions that the younger generation just really isn't paying attention to. And he's also getting a very interesting moderator uh, and discussion partner through Elon Musk and also David Sachs. And so I think that this is showing that he's not afraid to take a wide range here. And he's also willing to take questions from the audience is my understanding as well. And so I think this is going to not only personalize him, it'll show his uh, true agenda. It will really uh, launch him well, but this will also have a wide-ranging impact on voters that will actually hear from him, not just see a mainstream media headline tonight or tomorrow morning. And DeSantis has largely avoided unscripted public appearances, but you recently spoke to, with him on your podcast. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I was very uh, grateful and honored that he joined me and President Trump joined me uh, back in February and Vivek Ramaswamy. So I've had um, a number of presidential candidates and was very grateful to have the governor uh, join me Monday morning ahead of the National Religious Broadcasters Convention where he spoke later that evening. And we focused on religious freedom, his commitment to uh, his legislative agenda and really moving uh, America forward into freedom and liberty and his own personal faith. And so as an evangelical Christian, myself. Uh, that was really great to hear his perspective on the Constitution, on federalism, and have that conversation. So you can find that at thejennaellisshow.com. And I think he did a brilliant job for a lot of people that are criticizing him as maybe not uh, that personable or, you know, not that entertaining. I think he uh, comes across as just a regular guy who's very, very sharp. He's very informed about the Constitution, and he genuinely loves America. But he did choose to launch at a time when recent polling shows that he's trailing former President Trump by quite a lot. What do you think of this timing? Well, I think that at any point, Donald Trump has been the presumptive nominee. And so anyone coming in as a challenger is going to have to face an uphill battle. And so I think that Governor DeSantis uh, has been preparing for that. And listen, the polling can only go up from here. And so while the Trump camp has suggested 
that uh, that's not going to even out. I think that once he actually does announce tonight and he gets other endorsements and he continues on the campaign trail, then we are going to see some of those polling numbers even out. Will there be an equilibrium um, or will he ever overtake President Trump? I think those are the questions that we're going to be asking uh, into the primary season. And what kinds of voters do you think that he's trying to appeal to on Twitter by announcing on Twitter? I think definitely uh, moderates, independents, uh, disenfranchised Democrats, anyone who loves America, and certainly um, some of the voting demographics that President Trump historically has not really done well in, like uh, suburban women, for example, uh, people who have been frustrated with the COVID rhetoric. I think he's really trying to uh, position himself as someone who wants to be the leader of all of America, and not just this specifically the Republican Party, not just MAGA, uh, not just one specific demographic, but saying, hey, I'm open to everyone's uh, thoughts and questions here because we recognize that we are very diverse as a country. And finally, Jenna, how do you see his chances at appealing to these voters all across the nation? I think we're going to see him rise in the polls, and um, I do think that he's going to have um, a really great shot at uh, getting the nomination, and that's why Team Trump has uh, really spent, I think the report as of Monday was $15.3 million more than they're spending attacking Democrats, attacking Ron DeSantis, because they know that he does pose a significant threat. And I think this is actually a great thing for the conservative Republican Party to say, hey, we have a wide bench. And so I think it's a great thing that he's jumping in, and I think it'll be great to see some debates. I do think he has um, a, a definitely a shot much more than the Trump campaign is suggesting, but of course we'll have to wait and see. Jenna Ellis, thank you so much. Now, the governor is speaking right now, so we'll cut to him now. Well, let's see. So, yeah, Governor, there's been a lot of speculation over the last couple of months about your, your plans. Um, I understand that you may have an announcement to make. Uh, we've got, I think, a, a record audience assembled here. Uh, you know, the, probably the biggest uh, room that's probably ever been assembled online. Uh, what, what would you like to tell them? Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes and we feel it in our bones. Our southern borders collapse. Drugs are pouring into the country. Our cities are being hollowed out by spiking crime. The federal government's making it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. And our president, well, he lacks vigor, flounders in the face of our nation's challenges, and he takes his cues from the woke mob. I don't think it has to be this way. American decline is not inevitable. It is a choice. And we should choose a new direction, a path that will lead to American revitalization. I just do want to acknowledge uh, Jenna Ellis and your comments here. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our viewers before we wrap up here? Yeah, well, you know, I've been trying to get into the Twitter space as well, and everyone is suggesting the app keeps closing and literally melting down. So I think that that shows you how much enthusiasm there actually is across the country for uh, Governor DeSantis's announcement. And so I think that, again, is fantastic. And um, I loved having the opportunity to interview him. And I think he will uh, pan out to be a really 
a significant challenger to President Trump. And I think that as we move forward, everyone should always keep an open mind in a primary and should listen to the policy positions of every candidate and always measure that against the U.S. Constitution and fulfill our role as good American citizens to exercise our duty, our responsibility, and our privilege to vote and select and prefer our leaders. So the most disheartening thing to me is seeing a lot of this uh, kind of infighting and tearing down of either Donald Trump or DeSantis, critique them and criticize them on things that are valid, but not some of this personality back and forth. And so I would love to see the, the conversation rise. Maybe that's a little bit of, uh, you know, something that that is a little bit of, uh, you know, not really realistic. But I think that we as Americans uh, really should be looking at this primary as a great opportunity to have conservative policies at the fore and getting the best challenger for whoever the Democrat nominee is. All right. Thank you so much, Jenna Ellis, constitutional attorney. Really appreciate it. Thank you. DeSantis's official announcement has caused some reactions from his top opponent, Donald Trump. NTD's Arlene Richards has the update. After Ron DeSantis filed paperwork Wednesday to run for president, his top competitor, Donald Trump, had a thing or two to say about it. He took to social media with a series of comments. First, he again reminds DeSantis that he never would have won the gubernatorial election in 2018 if not for his own endorsement. Trump said in his post he was getting ready to drop out of the race, ran a terrible campaign. Ron told me he had one last chance, my support and endorsement. He said in one day he went from losing badly to winning by a lot. In another post, he said Ron DeSantis can't win the general election or get the nomination because he voted to obliterate Social Security. He accused the Florida governor of voting to hurt Medicare and increase taxes. Then he said he got 1.2 million more votes in Florida than DeSantis. Later, Trump posted a big data poll showing voters would choose Trump over DeSantis 60% to about 17%. But while Trump is letting off some steam, his looming legal challenges continue. Special counsel Jack Smith is wrapping up his investigation in the classified documents case. Fox News reports that Smith has been finalizing his probe for weeks, but it's not clear when he will announce his findings or whether he plans to prosecute Trump. As Smith wraps up his investigation, Trump's attorney sent a letter on Tuesday to Attorney General Merrick Garland. In the letter, they said Trump was being treated unfairly compared to President Biden, his son Hunter, and the Biden family, and said they wanted to discuss the ongoing injustice. So far, neither Garland's office nor the special counsel's office have commented on the letter. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And next up, negotiations continued today at the White House. A Republican-controlled House and President Biden are forced to find a compromise on raising the $31.4 trillion national debt to avoid economic catastrophe. NTD's Melina Wisecup has updates from Capitol Hill. Well, we're still seeing this continued debate over where spending levels should be for this fiscal year. Speaker McCarthy says that a basic requirement for Republicans should be to spend less money this year than they did the year before. Here's Speaker McCarthy from earlier today. But you owe more than you make in an entire year. So now for America, we owe more on our debt than our whole economy is worth, 20% more. 
So should you just raise the debt limit or should you literally think, let's eliminate some waste? And McCarthy sent his lead GOP negotiators to the White House this afternoon to continue those negotiation talks. The White House has characterized these talks as productive and in good faith. As for House Democrats, they say that taxes should be a part of this conversation and has, have also offered freezing spending levels at the 2023 level instead of 2022 levels. Here's what we heard from those among the ranks of Democrat leadership today. He doesn't want to control spending when it comes to the military budget or, uh, you know, reeling in some of these excessive tax cuts for billionaires and big corporations. Republicans have rejected putting revenue on the table, rejected making sure the wealthy and the well-off pay their fair share, rejected revisiting the 2017 GOP tax scam. There also has been some back and forth over whether or not to impose stricter work requirements for people receiving social welfare benefits, an idea that many Democrats have rejected, saying that those requirements already exist. Another area where we did expect to see some middle ground, but we're unsure at this moment, is whether or not Democrats would support rescinding the unspent COVID money. We've asked multiple Democrats about this, although we have not yet gotten any straightforward answers. But one thing is clear, that is that both sides will have to give something as one Republican pointed out to us. We have put an initial proposal on the table, but I don't think anybody thinks that initial proposal is going to be the final proposal. We're just eight days away from that June 1st deadline. That's the deadline that the Treasury has set for when the government will then be unable to fulfill its financial obligations. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. And today marks the one-year anniversary of the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. President Biden marked the anniversary with a memorial event at the White House. We, like many of you, have some understanding what it's like to lose a child on more than one occasion. For those who have lost a loved one in Uvalde, to the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters, the grandmoms, the grandpops, this is what I know. One, they'll never be gone from your heart. They'll always be part of you. Biden and First Lady Jill Biden offered their prayers to the 19 children and two teachers killed in the shooting. They also addressed the families of the victims and hoped that they would be able to overcome the pain. In his speech, Biden again called for Congress to pass stricter laws on firearms. This includes bans on magazines above a certain capacity, rifles such as AR-15s, passing a national red flag law, and ending the immunity from liability for gun manufacturers. And is the federal government banning gas stoves? Some lawmakers say stricter regulations will help the environment, while others say they just prefer gas stoves for cooking. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Like many of you, I was shocked when I first heard the report that the federal government was even considering such a proposal. The House Committee on Oversight and Accountability examined the Department of Energy's proposed rule to put stricter regulations on gas stoves. The department was invited to the hearing but did not attend. Representative Pat Fallon had this to say about that. The Department of Energy refused to come, claiming that the rulemaking process is ongoing. That's exactly when Congress should be asking questions, not when it's finished. Democrats said Republicans were spreading misinformation by saying the proposed rule would ban gas stoves. This proposed rule is not a ban on gas stoves. We are regulating indoor air pollution. 
The climate crisis is happening all around us, and Republican inaction is costing us lives. And Representative Pat Fallon asked Matthew Agan of the American Gas Association this. My colleague said it wasn't a ban. We have a witness that says it wasn't a ban. So isn't it, is it not a ban? Basically, it's going to amount to just a fewer, a lot fewer choices, and it really be an effect, effectively be a ban in the sense that you, uh -huh. you, you so a not, de facto you, ban. You will, you, you basically will okay. direct way of banning. As for the proposal on gas stoves helping the so-called climate crisis, Representative Byron Donald said this: This notion of chasing down uh, the Green New Deal fantasy, which, by the way, half the globe is ignoring. China is not doing this. Russia is not doing this. And the Europeans are backpedaling from this quickly. I spoke with Frank Lassay, founder of Truth in Energy and Climate. Lassay agreed that banning gas stoves will have little to no impact on the climate. And he pointed to the Chinese Communist Party. There are 8 billion tons of coal used in the world today. And the Communist Chinese use more than half. They get about 60% of all their energy, not just electricity, all their energy from coal. They're growing their use of coal, record levels of that. They're building throughout Asia hundreds, literally hundreds of coal plants. A growing number of chefs are pushing back against gas stove bans. And world-renowned chef Jose Andres recently got an exemption in California that will allow his new restaurant to have gas stoves. Jason Perry, NTD News. Singer Tina Turner died today at the age of 83. She was one of the most popular female artists of all time and was known as the Queen of Rock and Roll. A statement on her verified Facebook page said, It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Tina Turner. With her music and her boundless passion for life, she enchanted millions of fans around the world and inspired the stars of tomorrow. Turner was born as Anna Mae Bullock in 1939 in Tennessee. At age 17, she was recruited by musician Ike Turner and began performing using the name Tina Turner. Turner had a string of R&B hits in the 1960s and early 70s. Her mega hits include Proud Mary, What's Love Got to Do With It, and The Best. Turner left the U.S. in the 1990s and moved to Switzerland. Up next, New York City now has more illegal immigrants in its care than homeless citizens. State City officials say they cannot handle the crisis alone. And the market for artificial intelligence in healthcare is expected to expand exponentially in the next 10 years. How could that impact everyday Americans? Find out more after the break. New York City is struggling to handle the influx of illegal immigrants into the city. The mayor's office held a briefing today on what they call an asylum seeker crisis. It is in the best interest of everyone, including those seeking to come to the United States, to be upfront that New York City cannot single-handedly provide care to everyone crossing our border. The city now estimates to have the, the city now estimates to have more asylum seekers in care than New Yorkers experiencing homelessness when the administration first came into office. New York City Deputy Mayor Ann Williamson said the city currently has more than 44,000 illegal immigrants in the city's care, and over 70,000 people have come through the city's intake centers since the beginning of the crisis last spring. 
The city has opened up more than 150 emergency shelters, including nine humanitarian relief centers. City officials stressed that they will continue to provide shelter, but said the city is unable to handle the crisis on its own. They said New York City continues to see a significant increase in the number of people arriving on a daily basis. And over on the West Coast, San Francisco City leaders held a special meeting outdoors with the mayor to talk about open-air drug use. But they had to cut it short after protesters and locals started heckling and saying the officials aren't doing enough to address drug addiction. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors held a special outdoor public meeting with Mayor London Breed on Tuesday to talk about the city's handling of open-air drug dealing. But it was cut short after disruptions from unhappy residents and protesters. Several dozen people gathered as Peskin invited Breed to answer a question about plans to manage the drug crisis. You have homeless people. My question to Mayor Breed since you have rightly called the open-air drug dealing and a surge in overdose deaths a crisis. We are, we are acknowledging that problem, sir. The meeting was held at the city's United Nations Plaza, an area now known for drug dealing and usage just a couple blocks from City Hall. We can't keep speaking out of both sides of our mouth. On the one hand, we want change and we want to hold people accountable. And on the other hand, we're willing to let people get away with murder. Throughout the statements from Breed and Peskin, people in the crowd shouted at the officials. Some expressed their distrust in the officials, calling out policies that backfired. We got a fentanyl epidemic. It's worse than, and we, and we got it sanctuary policy and a sanctuary policy is protecting the criminals that's accused of bringing the drugs over here. I think San Francisco's at a crossroads right now of which direction we want to go and that's unfortunate because really what we need is we need both things. We need a public health approach and we need a target specific law enforcement approach for the organized drug dealing. Peskin struggled to continue his statements and Breed conceded that the meeting could not move forward. I do think that the fact is, I'm not sure without listening to the public that this is going to be the right forum to be able to answer your question thoroughly. In light of the mayor's statement, which I appreciate, we will recess this meeting to the Board of Supervisors Chamber, wherein the mayor will respond to the A for Ask question. Locals say city leaders have not addressed the problem at the root. I work in the shelter. It's not a funeral home. It's turning into a funeral home over fentanyl. This says fentanyl, Nazi war camp. Stop killing us for money. They're sending people into the shelter allowing them to do fentanyl. It's not right. Either Mayor London Breed needs to fix it or step down. It's over her head. She cannot handle it. Pittman says the funding shelters receive go to pacifying the drug addicts instead of rehabilitating them. If I tell someone they cannot bring their fentanyl in there, I get fired. If I tell them, hey, you cannot get high in here, I get fired. It's not right. After Breed and Peskin cut the meeting short, one woman was seen being detained by police and escorted away. Local media reported that she had thrown a brick towards the front of the crowd. And we'll keep you updated on that story as it develops.
Next, artificial intelligence could bring exciting advancements in the field of healthcare and medicine, but along with its potential, there are dangers that come with it. The global market size of generative AI in healthcare could expand to as much as 40 times larger in the next 10 years, according to some estimates. Artificial intelligence in medicine is making strides in advancement every day. Here's AI researcher Alexander de Ritter. And one of the things that is exceptionally interesting about this is that you can upload uh, like your blood test results and you can upload other medical data and history of a patient. And these AI models are able to interpret that and cross-reference it with all the available medical literature and giving them access to the latest research and, and the best potential treatments and diagnosis. DeRitter says that AI is also actively being used to develop new medication to identify new proteins. He says one day there will be a cure for cancer. But with all the potentials, there are pitfalls to AI in medicine. Recently, the World Health Organization advised caution in the use of artificial intelligence in health. The concern here is, is really your patient data privacy. Let's just say you have a wart on your foot. And it's not exactly something you want to post on your Instagram, right? It's not something you want other people to know. Uh, now, if you go to, to an AI model and say, how do you treat a wart on my foot, <laughs> right? You're already sharing something very private with an AI model. There's also a danger that artificial intelligence may be used to create medical weapons. Technology can be used by nefarious actors with bad intentions, right? So... For example, it becomes uh, possible for uh, people to use AI to come up with uh, super, super bugs or super viruses. So then the question becomes like, how does government even regulate that when people can do it individually in their homes? It's the same uh, conversation around like, uh, are you going to ban 3D printers just because 3D printers can print gun parts? Despite the possible pitfalls, de Ritter says there's hope the benefits of AI will outweigh the risk. Coming up, Ukraine's NATO membership is once again off the table, and the alliance's secretary general is calling to boost NATO's ammunition stockpiles as it reaches depletion. And a new report alleges UC Berkeley failed to disclose millions in Chinese funds. That money is tied to a renowned university in Beijing known as China's MIT. That and more after the break. Not on the agenda. Ukraine's NATO membership request is once again brushed aside as its conflict with Russia continues. And now NATO is calling to ramp up its arms production as its stockpile reaches depletion. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest. And then we also agree that the most urgent and important task now is to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation. On Wednesday, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said that Ukraine joining NATO during wartime is not on the agenda. He explained that there will be no membership to discuss if Ukraine doesn't prevail. Last September, Ukrainian President Zelensky announced a bid for fast-track membership of the NATO military alliance, right in the middle of his conflict with Russia. But that request has since stalled as the war drags on. 
In the face of Russian onslaught, Ukrainian troops are firing up to 10,000 artillery shells daily. To aid Ukraine, European nations have contributed a wide variety of weapons ranging from anti-tank missiles to tank shells. But Ukraine is consuming weapons faster than Europe produces them. NATO's ammunition stockpile have been dwindling as the alliance continues to supply Ukraine. To replenish inventories, Stoltenberg spoke about making new contracts with the defense industry, and he is inviting representatives from the industry to a NATO meeting next month in an effort to facilitate the process. NATO has been consistently calling to raise munition stockpile targets as its inventory approaches to a depletion. Here's what Stoltenberg said earlier this month. We need that investment uh, and production capacity now and for the longer term. We are moving in the right direction, but not as fast as the dangerous world we live in demands. Earlier this year, Stoltenberg called on NATO members to put concerns of weapon shortage aside and instead focus on aiding Ukrainian forces. But even before Russia's invasion, many NATO members fell short of meeting the alliance's stockpiling goal. That's as officials considered large-scale artillery battles a thing of the past. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. China's loans are pushing the world's poorest countries to the brink of collapse. That's what a new report from the Associated Press says in its recent analysis of the mega lender and a dozen of the countries most indebted to it, including Pakistan, Kenya, Zambia, Laos and Mongolia. For his analysis, I spoke with the chief economist at the Tresses Hedge Fund, Daniel Okaye. Now, Daniel, AP's recent analysis of a dozen countries most indebted to China showed that some are so indebted that they're just months away from collapse. That's so alarming. What, what's your assessment of this report, and is it really that bad? I think it's very concerning because the Belt and Road Initiative was basically an enormous spread of very thinly analyzed credit to nations that relied on a revenue stream that is not coming, that is not uh, evident in any shape or form. So the Chinese government and Chinese institutions were giving a lot of credit to nations in exchange for access either to commodities or very large infrastructure projects. However, Neither the infrastructure projects have generated the economic return that was initially expected, not even close to that, as the report shows the vast majority are uh, heavily loss-making. No? Uh, and the commodity side of the trade, in which part of the loans would be paid with commodities, is also something that is not uh, helping in any shape or form, because as we have seen in the past uh, year, uh, commodities, commodity prices have been falling quite significantly. And the report also points to China's secretive lending practices, many times defying the standard rules and lending practices, which would then give itself an advantage. Are these revelations a surprise to you? Well, not surprising. <laughs> There's no free money. And a lot of these countries thought that you know, there was almost an ideological perspective saying, ah, oh, we're going to exit the evil credit standards of the West and the United States that, and we're going to leave the IMF and the, and the American banks and we're going to uh, enter into huge loans with Chinese entities, believing that Chinese entities would give credit in, uh, you know, almost like free money, you know, like, like a donation. And obviously that doesn't exist. And what they have found is simply 
that if a country uh, is entering into difficulties with its creditors and is not reliable for Western creditors, they may get credit with China, but China's not giving that credit uh, for free, and certainly the conditions are much more onerous than what many of these countries believed. The, obviously, there's there's a there's a whole chain of, of conditions, not starting from obviously repaying them as uh, as maturities happen. Second, uh, exchanging for commodities. Third, entering into larger uh, credit con uh, uh, demands. And obviously, this is this is the what what tends to happen when some nations think that they can uh, sort of avoid the traditional financial system and enter into some form of uh, new type of, of financing, which is not new, is simply even even more aggressive than what they allegedly escaped from. So how do you see these revelations affecting global lending dynamics? Well, it's certainly a tightening of credit conditions, certainly a much uh, weaker access to credit from uh, to all of these nations that decided to be very specific and very vocal about their uh, willingness to avoid any type of exposure to Western credit, etc. It's going to be very, very challenging because what they're facing reality right now. They're facing, on the one hand, that they're entering into very substantial challenges with the Chinese institutions. Furthermore, that the Chinese institutions are not lending more. Huh? They're actually demanding the repayments. And at the same time, they have closed the door on the a traditional and, and open financial system of the West, uh, and they're showing that many of these nations, unfortunately, are showing that their ability to be uh, to to repay their loans is very very limited. So a, a credit crunch is absolutely inevitable. All right, thank you so much, Daniel Lacaye. Great to have you on as always. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. How much funding does China pour into American universities? According to a new report, hundreds of millions of dollars. The Daily Beast calls out UC Berkeley for a deal with a renowned university in Beijing known as China's MIT. NTD's Tiffany Meyer brings us that story. The report notes in 2018, the two universities struck a joint tech venture worth $220 million. The alleged deal was for a joint research facility in Shenzhen City, China. The investigation alleges Berkeley and the Shenzhen government agreed to build a 1.7 million square foot research campus in China, but never disclosed it. Berkeley disagrees. A spokesman for the university tells us UC Berkeley did not receive $220 million in funding from the Shenzhen government and described the Daily Beast report as filled with errors, omissions and demonstrable falsehoods. However, Berkeley didn't dispute everything. The university acknowledged it signed an agreement with the Chinese university in 2016 for $19 million in sponsored research, noting it did not disclose those funds at the time because laws didn't require it back then. The school said it did report those funds in 2019 when the laws changed. 
According to the Daily Beast, Berkeley also allowed Chinese officials tied to the joint research facility to privately tour their U.S. semiconductor facilities at the Marvel Nanofabrication Lab. The cutting-edge facility is used for U.S. semiconductor research. Visitors included Chinese Communist Party officials and the vice mayor of Shenzhen City. A spokesman for Berkeley tells us the lab visit took place as described. As for what the university is doing now, the spokesman told us Berkeley takes the matter of undue foreign government influence seriously, adding that it has taken many steps in safeguarding its research. That includes a requirement that all faculty members must report annually on outside professional activities, including extended travel and research with non-U.S. organizations. Coming up, ahead of Memorial Day, Southern California celebrated the 50th anniversary of prisoners of war returning home from the Vietnam War. They share what bonded them together. And in golf, a club pro who normally teaches the sport for a living qualified for last week's PGA Championship and nearly won. Michael Block reveals his personal highlight from the whirlwind experience when we come back. Memorial Day is coming up. One Southern California city celebrated a special anniversary with a parade. Vietnam prisoners of war recalled their days together 50 years after their return home. Former prisoners of war, or POWs, from the Vietnam War gathered at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California on Tuesday to mark the 50th anniversary of their return home. They paraded through Yorba Linda and were greeted by hundreds of cheering supporters waving U.S. flags along the parade route. Later, an official ceremony took place on the grounds of the library. What we're celebrating is our return from captivity and the amazing opportunity to get together with some of my closest friends. You'll never find, find a more tightly welded group of friends because we've been through the same hellfire together. McNish was captured after he was shot down over North Vietnam on September 4, 1966. My entire six and a half years in prison, I had absolutely zero doubt that my country would never forget me, that I would be brought home back to my country whether I was alive or did not survive. Um, that's the strength of having that knowledge was part of what got me through six and a half years of hell. We all suffered in many, many ways that most people don't know anything about, you know, family separations and deaths and just bad circumstances, but we overcame it all. And talk about life-changing experiences. This group that you're meeting here today and those before us who now passed away accomplished amazing things with their lives after Vietnam. So I have no hard feelings against the Vietnamese at all. That's all in the past. And, we, and in, you know, in healthy life, you just press on. You don't harbor any grudge. You don't get even. You just, uh, you just press on in life. So well, luckily, we all pressed on in life. And here we are 50 years later. When some of us became congressmen, senators, businessmen, airline pilots, doctors, surgeons, veterinarians, all walks of life. Uh, and and we, all, we all pressed on. 
The Nixon Presidential Library is marking the 50th anniversary of the return of the POWs with a new exhibition called Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a true underdog story in golf. That's right, Steph. 46-year-old Michael Block, who captured the hearts of golf fans over the weekend when the club pro finished 15th at the PGA Championship, revealed yesterday that the highlight was receiving a congratulatory text from his hero, Michael Jordan. Block, who was seen wearing his Jordan brand shoes at the Oak Hill Country Club last week, said Jordan's message was, quote, something in the way that what he saw is why he loves the game of golf so much. Block's saga is a true underdog story somewhat similar to the Roy McAvoy character in the movie Tin Cup as played by Kevin Costner. Block normally teaches golf for $150 an hour out in California. He's managed to play in 25 PGA events in his career and his making them cut last week was just the fifth time he'd done so. He did it with a bang too, at one point getting as high as second place, while his incredible hole-in-one on the 15th Sunday was the first at the event in three years and earned him a hug from four-time major champion Rory McIlroy. For his efforts, Block earned an invitation to play this week's Charles Schwab Challenge in Fort Worth and an automatic invite to next year's PGA Championship. And in the NFL, some ominous news from New Jersey as New Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers strained his calf at practice. Now, fortunately for Jets fans, Rodgers said the injury wasn't too serious, but this is the same franchise that hasn't been to the playoffs in more than a decade, and the last time they had a star at quarterback was in 2008 with Brett Favre whose mid-season injury that year doomed their playoff hopes. After that season, Favre left for Minnesota while New York fired their head coach. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, no NBA games, but in the NHL, the Florida Panthers look to sweep the Carolina Hurricanes tonight in a series that's seen every game decided by just a single goal. And finally, for you baseball fans, 10 games are on tonight featuring a Rays versus Blue Jays matchup with Tampa Bay starting ace Shane McClanahan, who leads the majors with seven wins. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. Next, one of the world's last wild horse species is back from the edge of extinction. A zoo in North London is celebrating the birth of two foals. On the meadows at Whipsnade Zoo, just north of London, two foals are grazing alongside their mother. Keeper Rachel Melvin has been caring for the foals since they were born. One afternoon just behind us over here, we had Charlotte, the first who gave birth to Lorgan, um, gave birth in the middle of the afternoon in front of the public. It was really nice, she did amazing. She's an ex experienced mother. And then about two weeks later, we came in one morning to find that we had a second foal. Really, really exciting, especially because she's a girl. The foals belong to the world's last wild horse species and are part of a successful breeding program. Shavalsky's horses share common ancestry with modern horses but the two lines split over 30,000 years ago. The species was classified as extinct in the wild before they were reintroduced to Mongolia. That was part of a conservation project between scientists from Mongolia and the Zoological Society of London. Shavalsky's horses, named after a Polish explorer, are also known as Mongolian wild horses, or takis, in Mongolia. But reintroduction itself was not possible without zoo uh, captive breeding tahir. 
So that's why when, when you have like new generation of Taikis uh, born in zoos, that's very big excitement, of course. Horses remain an important symbol of Mongolian national identity due to the country's nomadic history and the conquests of Genghis Khan. When horse coming and galloping, coming to you, <laughs> it's in our blood, that, that nomadic culture. And then it just comes like through your throat. Hundreds of wild Shivalsky's horses now live in the Mongolian steppe, and their numbers are growing, reaching 940 at the last count. And that's it for today's news. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, though, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.